G'day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Broadcast from the studios of 3CR, your only radio left. My name is Susanna Duffy. In this episode, we look at that strange intergenerational report. What on earth? which leads to the matter of taxation. We remember and salute John Cummins and listener. If you're a racist, if you support racism, vote no to the voice. I wonder how many people will openly admit to being a racist. Don't forget, all of those no campaigners are just racists. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. This week we've been hearing a bit about the intergenerational report, like we're about to get older, which means we require much more government spending on things like healthcare, aged care and the NDIS. And apparently we have no real way to pay for it. Even the old standby favourites, like taxing petrol and cigarettes, will fall short because electric cars are becoming more popular and tobacco tax revenue is plummeting. But hang on, we live in a country which is ranked as number 12 in size with a total GDP of, oh God, it figures too hard, too hard to read out in numbers. What it is, is 2.2 trillion. That's about 12 zeros. In any case, there are 47 billionaires and 2,177,000 millionaires. There's obviously no doubt that there's enough money around to fund a first-class program for the elderly without attacking a generation. The problem isn't that there is insufficient money, but that very small percentage have their hands on more than their share. The intergenerational report should be scrapped and an interclass report researched and reported on. That would make more sense. Just a couple of days back, there was a headline in The Age. Cost crisis, how the generations are coping. And there follows a report by two journalists. Why two, I wonder? Oh, well. But there's a refusal here to show how the working class is coping. And this continues the refusal by the mainstream media in general to even consider that there are bigger issues at stake here than intergenerational competition. And it's not just that greedy few. Let's have a look at some legal money grabbers, and that's the churches. Now, guess how much money the combined churches in Australia make every year? While you're putting your mind to guessing the amount of money that the churches rake in annually, let's raise our spirits higher by thinking of the reason behind these churches. 
How much money do the combined churches in Australia make in one year? Well, it's a big truckload of cash, listener. Between 35 billion and 40 billion every year. And their wealth grows every year. That's a pretty amazing amount of money. And if you're astounded by this figure, well, I certainly am too. The average Australian thinks most or all churches are close to broke. That's a misconception, an all-too-common misconception. You just don't stop to think about the extent of all the real estate and financial investments held by traditional religious institutions in Australia. The Catholic Church rakes in somewhere about $20 billion each year. I'm talking billion, listener, not million. The total wealth of the Sydney Catholic Archdiocese alone is $1.3 billion. The Sydney Anglican Church owns half of Glebe. All of the best foreshore on Port Hacking and a swag of prime Sydney real estate. These religions don't make money from the Sunday collection plate anymore. That's just small change. These carefully managed institutions are earning significant interest from investments gleaned from the estates of the faithful dying who left their wealth to the church. Churches are landlords and investment managers, and everything they make is tax-free. Church income is earned and received absolutely free of tax, thanks to an old law we inherited from the English. You see, the pursuit of religion was always considered a charitable purpose and therefore exempt from tax. Today we have the Charities Act, which deems religion to be a charitable purpose and therefore tax exempt. Churches don't have to prove that religion is for the public benefit. We're just supposed to accept it. And because of this, between 35 billion and 40 billion of church money goes untaxed each and every year. Just imagine what we could do with a tax from that much money. Yep, so this means Australia is missing out on about $10 billion a year from those unpaid taxes from the churches. It's not just corporate tax, but income tax, GST, payroll tax, council rates, land tax, state government taxes and local council taxes. Churches are run as corporations with investments in real estate, private hospitals, preschools, aged care facilities, insurance companies and private commercial enterprise. Just consider sanitarium. That's owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know them, the Seventh-day Adventists. The people who knock on your front door. Sanitarium makes about a billion dollars a year in profit, yet pays no taxes. It's a church. Now, Wheatbix doesn't really pass the pub test. Churches such as Hillsong and the Church of Scientology are clearly money-making ventures, and they operate more as entertainment organisations than churches. But they still pay no taxes. Gone are the days when the parish church was the centre of the community and local priests lived frugal lifestyles. 
more and more people are moving away from the churches and it no longer serves the purpose it once did. Instead, it operates as a giant money-making venture and on a global scale. It's a multinational corporation. Millions of dollars are spent on defending employees from criminal charges to protect the church's reputation. Not only do they enjoy a tax-free status, but governments give churches hundreds of millions a year in handouts, the same governments which cut back on social security payments and other government programs which would help the marginalised and the struggling. And don't forget the thousands of priests who received JobKeeper payments. And just keep this in mind, listener. At the last census, 47%, that's fewer than half of Australians, identified as religious. In 1971, it was 85.6%. All I can say is, The massively excessive wealth of religious organisations is as big a scandal as their pedophilia and needs to be completely exposed. Their wealth is not God-given. Religious organisations are tax-exempt and are subsidised by us. They pay no tax on their incomes and tithes, donations, requests, investments and trade. I call it legal corruption, the use of public money, taxation, for a private purpose, religion. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. on the program today we pay tribute to an inspirational leader of working people dare to struggle dare to win if you don't fight you lose and that was the catch cry by which john cummins lived a life dedicated to working people and to the underdog he certainly did dare to struggle and he most definitely dared to win john died after a 12-month battle with cancer on the 29th of August 2006. He was just 58. John grew up in Melbourne's inner north and supported the Fitzroy Lions until the club was sold to Brisbane. He went to Parade College and played footy for his school and he captained their first team in his final year. He went on to a tertiary education and struggles of the time brought profound changes to John's outlook and ambitions. Working in blue-collar jobs like the production line at Northcote Pottery accelerated those changes, so it was no surprise when he rejected a career in teaching and looked to a more radical, political and working life. He began working in the building industry in 1972, immediately joining the Builders' Labourers' Federation, an organisation of which he remained an active and influential member until it amalgamated with the CFMEU in 1994. Camo worked as a labourer and a scaffolder on some prominent jobs in Melbourne, including Collins Place and the Westgate Bridge. 
where he became a union activist. It was his determination and considerable skills on the job that came to be noticed and he gained the position of organiser for the BLF in Melbourne. His next stint was in the Pilmore region of Western Australia where he succeeded the late Jim Bacon as an organiser in 1980. As most of you would know, Jim was later to become the Premier of Tasmania. John's wife, Di, and young son, Mick, made the move to the Pilbara remote area with him. It was a wild time there during the last big minerals boom, and the industrial climate certainly put Camo under extreme pressure, but he thrived on the challenge and became a popular and effective organiser. It was during his time in the West that his second son, Shane, was born. He returned to Melbourne and took up organising in the increasing rough and tumble of an industry under pressure from the Fraser Liberal government. His work continued under the Hawke Labor government and he worked even harder throughout the deregistration of the BLF under the Kane State Labor government in 1986 and 1987. He was prosecuted many times for trespassing on sites and imprisoned for those activities and for breaching court orders. Many times he was physically removed from the site by police but continued to return to service union members. As Camo explained why he was in jail to his boys, to his young sons, I reckon if I don't tell the judge how to do his job, then he shouldn't tell me how to do mine. Camo led by example, helping other BLF members resist the intimidation tactics. Many construction workers saw him as the front line. However, in the early 1990s, faced with a second five-year deregistration of the BLF, Camo and other BLF members around Australia were forced to choose between continuing to fight an increasingly onerous battle on their own or amalgamating into the new CFMEU, a union which included its old political and industrial rivals, the BWIU, the Building Workers Industrial Union. Camo and those supporting amalgamation won the argument, and the merger took place in 1994. Many people seemed surprised at Camo's willingness to be a part of the team with people who had been opposed to him. Johnny Setka asked him once how he could forgive people who had fought hard against him in the past. And Camo said, you can't hold it against them for being loyal to their union. You see, he had the ability to rise above the personal and that really is a sign of leadership. In 1996, Camo was elected president of the Victorian branch of the CFMEU. In this role, he played a major part in building a strong team under a new leadership drawn from all parts of the new union. As part of this team, he played an influential and positive role in developing the wages policy and strategies that saw wage increases, shorter hours and improved long service leave entitlements for Victorian construction workers. The success was ongoing and it resulted in the Howard government singling out the CFMEU for special attention in the form of legislative attacks. Camo faced the Coal Royal Commission 
and conducted himself in the dignified but combative manner that such a politically motivated witch hunt deserved. Kamo will be remembered for his tenacity, his principles and strategic brilliance. Few union officials could hold a candle to John at a mass meeting. He was charming, charismatic and possessed a wicked sense of humour. Kamo loved a beer, a bet and the Fitzroy and North Heidelberg football clubs. And he loved the building industry. And he also loved his family. John Cummins was the most respected unionist of his generation. An inspirational leader of construction workers, a mentor to so many, and a man who served his union and workers like few others ever have. He is sorely missed. Vale, John Cummins, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. In Camo's own words, you've done yourself a treat. A memorial service was held for Camo on the 4th of September. More than 3,000 people packed the Regent Theatre, a building, of course, saved by the BLF in the 1970s. The stage of the theatre was decked out with a massive Eureka flag and the coffin was decorated with symbols of Kamo's life. A football, footy jumpers, a beach shell from Sorrento, a hard hat, a denim jacket and a Eureka flag. Projections above the stage showed moving photos of his life in struggle and him with family and friends. After the ceremony... The crowd marched through Melbourne streets behind Camo's coffin, silent, but with fists in the air and carrying the old BLF flags. The march stopped traffic, as rallies led by Camo had done throughout his life. When the march reached Trades Hall, they stopped and broke into the old chant, Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you'll lose. And long live John Cummins. Many of the younger CFMEU members marched side by side with older BLF militants. Not surprisingly, the establishment media reports on Camo's memorial were very brief. However, the Australian newspaper had to acknowledge notices marking Cummins' death have dominated local newspaper classifieds for the past week, outstripping those for Democrats' founder, Don Chip. What the newspaper failed to mention was that in the news sections, Chip was given pages of type, while Camo was allocated only small articles in hidden parts of the back pages. Despite newspapers' editors' desire to marginalise the memorial, the Herald Sun published more than three pages of obituaries. 3CR Now let's hear from the BL from the bush. Yeah, morning comrades, morning listener. BL from the bush calling in, hoping you're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Well, speaking of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, Susanna's already made mention of the late and great Johnny Cummins. Well, that used to be his... uh, his catch cry on the original uh, Concrete Gang back in the day, also known as Harold on that show. He'd always start off with, with that and finish with the legendary dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. 
You know, Camo was a legend in his own right. You'd hate you saying that, but he was. He was an organiser of the Builders Labor's Federation and later on with the uh, CMFEU. His work that he did for the benefit of the membership was second to none. His loyalty to the members was proven by uh, the succession of achievements won by each union that he was involved with. You know, I had the pleasure of working with him and some couple of good blues. One springs to mind was the uh, Luyang dispute in the early 80s, where the Hamer government and the uh, NBA colluded together and sacked over a thousand workers there. Eventually we won that blue, but through his leadership down there, along with, of course, Harry Carslake and Barry Kent, but with his leadership down there and, and uh, the organising of, the, of uh, the members down there, uh, we won that blue. And also, we worked together out there at, uh, while he was the organising out there where we had the blue at the airport with stopping the planes going to East Timor. Camo was uh, full of sayings, you know, and one of them, <laughs> just speaking of that, was uh, on that blue we had out there when things got a bit a bit tight out there. He said, ah, oh, fuck this, let's go stand in front of the plane to stop it taking off to Denpasar Airport and uh, putting more pressure on the Indonesian government. But, yeah, he, uh, he had a few good ones, uh, listener. I remember sitting with him once and uh, there was a blue one. There was a worker injured. He's just looked at this boss and with the steely eyes and just and just said to him, you fucked him, you fix him. And the fear that was in this boss's face because the way it was said and the way it was meant was that uh, this, this boss was going to get the treatment that he deserved if the, the injured worker wasn't looked after. So, yeah, like, I might read a couple to you, um, listener, some of his, um, some of his sayings, you know, and one, one there, I'd say, uh, Susanna, it'd be one for you, is that um, on, a, on, on his sports commentating, or anyone, it was that uh, as unbiased as a Collingwood cheer squad. And the famous, as I said before, uh, on the fauna, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You know, Camo always has a, had this iconic way of thing. If, if you ever went to him with a, with a bit of a problem or whatever, you just say, get on with it and stop sucking. One of his famous ones, and, and, and it's true, it's true to this day, is that you, know, you can't organise from outside the gate. And you're only as good as your last blue, <clears throat> which, you know, how true is that? So, yeah... Yeah, he's, uh, he's been gone now, Lister, 16 years, and uh, it's time of the year, or around about this, on the 26th of uh, August. We like to sit back and just remember what a great legacy that bloke left behind, you know, with health and safety and whatever, and workers' conditions and pay. But his doggedness and his, his attitude to health and safety was driven by the ghosts of uh, the Westgate Bridge. You know, Camo was a was a worker on the Westgate Bridge and uh, never forgotten the loss, the senseless loss, listen to the senseless loss of 35 lives there. And just on the Westgate, um, listener, that that's another anniversary that's coming up on the 15th of next month. So hopefully um, this year we'll be able to get together and commemorate the loss of those, senseless loss of those, those uh, workers there. Because uh, the last couple of years, COVID's put a bit of a damper on that. It was 50 years, I think, a couple of years back. But anyway, yeah, we always sort of listen, uh, always sort of remember. Come on.
his contribution to the work, wages, conditions, health and safety, contribution to uh, the membership, and just to Pete Ryan, just just didn't stay on the job. It was outside the job. If there was anyone in need of of, of help or was struggling outside of a work, he'd do his best to help them. And uh, if he if he didn't do it himself, he'd find someone else who could, or or point them in the direction where they might be able to get a chop out somewhere. So yeah, he's left a, a, a very big legacy uh, behind him, listener. And um, I can say he's very proud to work to know him and to have him as a friend and a comrade. So yeah. Anyway, that's um, that's probably about it for me today, listener. I'll um. I'll use another one of his sayings, most famous, most famous, and it's been used all around the, around the traps everywhere, and you just ate now, is that we always go out in the same old way, always remember and come. Oh, you say these things at time, and you just sort of think, oh, yeah, that was one of his. Yeah. So I'll go out in the same old way, listener. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. And I'll leave you with Roaring Jack and the boys of the BLF. <laughs>